110th Psalm is where we'll be this morning, Psalm 110. We picture Jesus, especially this time of year, as a baby laying in a manger. And he was. It's not all he was, but he was. We picture Jesus sometimes as a king. And he was. And he is. It's not all he is. We picture him sometimes as a prophet, as one who is speaking the words of God, and he certainly was and is that, but not only that. There's an aspect of Jesus we don't talk about very often. Maybe it's the fact that we're Baptist and uh, we just kind of shy away from words like this, uh, but it's the word priest. You see, Jesus is prophet and priest and king. He fills all three offices. And Psalm 110 really drills in, uh, kind of makes the priest you would think looking at it, it looks like he's talking about the king and he just throws in a line about a priest. But no, 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 no. This is the cream filling of the Oreo of Psalm 110. So let's dig in. Let's read the psalm together. Stand with me as we read God's word. And this is God's word. If you let it, it will change your life. Just ask the New Testament authors who quoted this more than any other passage of Scripture in the entire Old Testament. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of this psalm would dig deep into the depths of our hearts that you will use it to change us into the people you want us to become. Do your work in this time. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. You know, this psalm looks like it's about a king, right? Uh, um, it, the Lord says to my Lord, uh, another word for king, uh, sometimes it's used as Lord, the, the, the Hebrew word Adonai. Now, if you see Lord in, in small caps in your Bible, so it's a big L with the small caps, rest of the word, that's not Adonai. That's Yahweh. That is, that is the I am name of God. When Moses says, tell me, uh, uh, who do I say sent me? God says, I am that I am. That's that name, okay? So when you see those small caps, that is God's declaration of his own name. But when you see the Lord in regular uh, uh, type, then, then you know that it's, Adonai. And Adonai is a ruler, it's a master. It was often, it was sometimes used as, as the word for a king. And that's what's happening here in Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, says to Adonai, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we have this idea of God telling a king, you, you just, I, I am doing the work to bring your enemies in submission. You just trust me. Now we think of sitting down, we think of him not doing anything. But I don't think that's the case at all. But look down in verses 5 through 7. 
The Lord, Adonai, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now, is this talking about God in heaven? I don't think so. I think it's talking about the earthly king doing what God has already told him that he would make sure is accomplished. Remember Wednesday night, those of you who were here, we were talking about this fact that God sometimes calls us to wait, sometimes calls us to do specific actions, but in either case, He's always calling us to actively work our faith. You cannot sit idly by and wait for God to do everything without doing something yourself. That's not faith, that's laziness. Real faith involves activity. And here, I think the activity that God is telling the king is, hey, hey, I'm going to make your enemies. So you sit right here as I make your enemies your footstool and you take notes because I'm giving you marching orders on how your enemies are going to be subdued. Because in verses 5 through 7, he, he is the one that's shattering the kings. It's the king. It's the, it's the person that he's talking to in this psalm. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations. He will scatter chiefs. He will drink from the brook. And he will lift up his head. This is the king following God's rule. Exercising it on earth as God does in heaven. That's what a king is supposed to do. He said, wait a minute, you, you said this was about a priest. Now you're talking about a king. Hang on, we'll get there. Verse 2. Notice, notice the power of God. Uh, verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Um, I think it's your strong rod, I think is the literal Hebrew. In other words, your rule, God guaranteed, will extend out of this place in fact, he even says, it's a command. Rule in the midst of your enemies. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, for a brief period in the days of Solomon, at no point in either ancient Israel or modern Israel has Israel not been surrounded by enemies. At no point. Maybe there's a lesson for us in that as the church of God. The enemies may be all around us, but we are to rule in the midst of those enemies. We are to exercise God's authority. Now, that does not mean we take charge and they have to do what we say. It's not that kind of a rule, is it? But we still got to do the work that God has called us to do in the midst of enemies, don't we? Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely. Literally, it's they are a free will offering. They're giving themselves, they're saying, please, the, the text of this verse is so troublesome. It, it, the various trans, translations and, and, and manuscripts have it in various different ways, so it's really hard to get down to it. But basically what this text tells us is that God is the one who is empowering this king by bringing all of the, the benefits of following his rule. Uh, uh, the, the, the people are, are, are giving themselves freely. The uh, garments, the holy garments that they're wearing, kind of hinting at priesthood there, isn't it? Uh, the womb of the morning would have been an ancient expression that would have described the earliest, earliest part of, of like the late night, early morning hours, really even before the sun comes up. You know that, you know that, that kind of pre-dawn sort of blue glow that happens, that, that kind of thing. They talked about that as the womb of the morning. The, the dew, on the grass 
in an area that got between 6 and 24 inches of rain a year, that dew was vital for plant life. There's a vitality here. All of this kind of seems to suggest that this king is empowered by God to rule because he, he has been charged by God to rule. And so God is giving him the things that he needs to do it and he is actively responding in obedience and the rule is being set up. It's a royal song. But wait a minute, you said, this is about a priest, not a king. Yes, it is. It's about a priest king. See, here's the thing that we often miss and perhaps it's because we're not liturgical. Perhaps it's because we believe in the priesthood of the believer that every believer is a priest before God. And that's certainly true in Scripture. You can follow that out, and, and, and we can talk about that kind of thing. But, but here's the thing we often miss. We are priests, but we need a priest. If, if we are to come to God, we cannot come directly to God without someone bridging the gap. We are all sinful human beings, right? And God is holy for him to have sin. That's just ridiculous. God, God isn't going to put up with that. And he shouldn't. Why should he? If he's a holy God, why should he allow sinful people in his presence? No, no, no. We need someone who can bridge the gap, who can say, I am going to ensure that you have right relationship with God because I am the one that's going to take care of your sin problem. And I am the one that's going to represent God before you and you before God. We need a capital P. Priests, not just, not just a little priest, not just somebody who makes a sacrifice every day and every week and every month and every year. We need a better priest. And without giving too much away, this psalm tells us about that better priest. Psalm 110 verse 4 is where it really condenses down. Remember, remember I gave you the picture of the Oreo? You got the cookies, verses 1 through 3, and verses 5 through 7. Here's the cream filling in 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I find in that one verse five different aspects of this decree of God. Okay, five things that I want you to see about the decree of God, and then we're going to ask the question, so what? All right, so decree, uh, the decree, first of all, is a sovereign decree. The Lord has sworn. Did you catch it? The Lord has sworn. Now, why do I call that a sovereign decree? Because the Lord is sovereign, we think of God sometimes in this picture of him having to respond to what we're doing. Oh no, they did something else. They screwed up. Now I got to change my... No, that's not God. God is sovereign. He's already accounted for your knuckleheadedness. Boy, isn't that a relief? Because we are knuckleheads. We need a God who can account for our bad choices and our mistakes and foibles and mess-ups. God already knows, and he's already factored it into his plan. The Lord has sworn. There's a sovereignty in that. There's a declaration. You, uh, one 
I think it's the author of Hebrews is talking about God swearing to Abraham an oath that, that He is going to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach and, and as the stars in the sky. And, God, and, and the author of Hebrews says God couldn't swear by anyone greater. So He had to swear by Himself. If God is going to make sure, God is going to make sure that it is absolutely certain that Abram doesn't have a doubt in his mind that God is going to fulfill his promise, so he swears by himself. And in the same kind of way, the Lord has sworn, you can almost hear by himself, because who else would he swear by? This obviously isn't cursed. This is making a solemn oath. And because of who is making the oath, we know that this is a sovereign decree. In fact, we know it's not only sovereign, but it's secure because look at the next line. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Numbers chapter 23. Moses writes, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? No, that's not the character of God. When God says it, it's done. There used to be some bumper stickers, some sayings. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You, You don't even have to believe it. God has said it, it's done. He has sworn it and he will not change his mind. He's not like us where we have to change our minds. He's not like us where we make mistakes or we find out new information or or something comes up that, that wasn't on our radar before and now we have to adjust our plans. How many of you have had to adjust plans this week? You made a plan, something happened. I got a kid at home with flu. Plans adjusted very quickly because of that. Right? Suddenly, suddenly we're having to make work arrangements so that, so that we can keep them at home. Suddenly we're having to, to uh, go from let's do something fun to got to take this one to the doctor. Or we're having to make other kinds of adjustments on the fly. It's just that way with kids, right? We have things that come up and we don't even know they're coming. And as soon as they come, we've got to change things. We are constantly subject to change. But God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind because he doesn't need to. Because he's already right. He said, I've sworn and I will not change my mind. It's a saving decree. This decree that he is making is the means of our salvation. You are a priest. What happens is a priest represents people before God. He offers sacrifices. Sometimes it's a a fragrant sacrifice. He sets an aroma as he's praying for the people. Sometimes he's offering an animal on the altar. Sometimes putting his hand on the head of that offering, transferring sin from the guilty people to the animal. Sometimes... The offering is grain, and it's getting waved. There there are different kinds of offerings, but they they all serve the basic purpose that this priest is representing people before God. 
He's bridging a gap. They cannot bridge because of their sin. They can't bridge that gap. And that once a year when that high priest goes in and he sprinkles the blood of the animal onto the, the Ark of the Covenant and onto the curtain and onto the, the artifacts that are in there, in that Holy of Holies, on the walls of the Holy of Holies, what he's doing is he is, he is representing the people before God. But priests don't just sacrifice for people. Priests also represent God to them. It's the priests that were tasked with teaching the people how to walk in God's ways. I mean, you can sacrifice for sin all day long. We're just going to keep on sinning. We need to know the right way to live. And it was the priests that were tasked with teaching people how to live. There weren't copies of the scripture on every nightstand in ancient Israel. In fact, there weren't copies of scripture on every nightstand in medieval times even. There weren't copies of scripture until really after the invention of the printing press that were even commonly available. In fact, even just a couple hundred years ago, you could go in the average church of any denomination whether it was Catholic or whether it was evangelical or whether it was Orthodox, and you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who had a physical copy of the Scripture in their home. How were they going to know? That was part of the job of the priest, to show people what God has said and to teach them how to live. You see, by making this king a priest, God is tasking him to stand between the people and himself so that they always have a means of access. Now, earthly kings, they're sinners too. They don't always do so well at this. Maybe we need a better priest, a better king. This decree is a surviving decree. You are a priest. What's the next word? You can go ahead and say it. It's, up. it's okay. Forever. When does forever end, Jim? It doesn't. <laughs> Never, he said. It doesn't. This is a decree that will survive the ages of eternity. This isn't a decree that says, all right, you're a priest for a little while, and then you got to stop. This isn't a priest, uh, 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 a decree of, well, you'll be a priest for the time being until something better comes along. No, no, no. This is a priest forever. Hebrews uh, chapter 7. Hebrews, in fact, from chapter 4 verse 15 all the way through chapter 10, I think it's verse 25. I mean, about half the book of Hebrews is about this idea of Jesus being the high priest. Not just a high priest, but the high priest. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. The former priest, this is from 723, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. The problem that we keep having with these priests, they're good representatives of God before people and people before God. The problem is they keep dying on us and we got to keep putting a new one in. There's a high priest and then he dies and then another high priest and then he dies and then another high priest and then he dies. But look at verse 24. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Yeah, he did die. 
just didn't stay dead. And because he's alive, and not just alive right now, but permanently alive, forever alive, Jesus is the high priest that can save and save and save and save and save and save and save again. And he's just getting started. This is a surviving decree because it's a surviving priest. It's not one who dies and then is gone forever. It's not one who continues for a little while, but then it's not so effective anymore and you got to get another one. No, 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 no. This really is a superior priest. And, and the decree is superior too. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is a... It, it, some scholars have thought it's not a name because uh, it is a phrase. It's a king of righteousness is what it means. Um, but it is. But it seems to be a proper name of, of one king of Salem. Back in Genesis 14, Abram is working with a couple of kings and they're fighting off and in battle against some other kings that have allied against them. And so you've got these, this group of kings and this other group of kings and Abram's in this group and they win the battle. And then after that, the king of Sodom comes to him and, and, and tries to give him stuff. But then, but then uh, also comes this guy named Melchizedek. And he's described as both the king of Salem, Jerusalem, and a priest of the Most High God. The Hebrew name El Elyon used here. It's only once of tw two times in Scripture it's used. Or three times, excuse me, because he uses it. Uh, it says that he's a priest of El Elyon. And then a couple verses later, he says, blessed is El Elyon because of what he's doing through you. And then in one of the Psalms, it refers to El Elyon as well. Why do, I, why do I go into this? Melchizedek is a king priest. Okay? When it says after the order of Melchizedek, he's saying that you're a priest in this sort of way. He's not saying you're not as good as Melchizedek, and so you're kind of one of the successors, one of the, de one of the descendants in the line. He's not saying anything like that. In fact, you might even say, you might even say that this priest is the, he's the real one. And Melchizedek just gives us kind of a way to see who he is. Kind of like the Davidic king is a representative of the Davidic king. Kind of like David is someone who's pointing us forward to Christ. Melchizedek is someone who is pointing us forward to Christ too. And that, that superior decree, it involves, a, <coughs> excuse me, it involves a superior temple. Uh, Hebrews 8. Now the point, and what we're saying in the middle of this section, he says, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is sealed at, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, referring back to Psalm 110.1 there, then he says in verse 2, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Here's what's happened. Moses has gone up on a mountain and he has gotten the Ten Commandments and he is getting instructions from God and some of those instructions are to build this 
tabernacle. This place where the Ark of the Covenant would be stored and, and where, where peop, the people of Israel, right in the midst of the camp of Israel, would sit God's house. This place where he would go to meet with his people, where he would dwell with them. And he's showing Moses this vision, and I think he's showing Moses his own throne room, and he's saying, all right, here is, here is, here is what you're representing with this tabernacle. Now build my tabernacle like this so that it kind of looks like the real thing. You see, the tabernacle was just, it was a copy. Verse 5 of Hebrews 8. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. See, see, when, when Moses was about to erect the tent, God is showing him. Make everything, God says, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Make sure you copy the pattern that I've shown you. The tabernacle was the copy. The temple was a copy. God's own throne room, that's the real Holy of Holies. And here's Jesus standing in the real Holy of Holies as our real high priest, offering himself his own blood. It's a superior covenant too. I'm not going to read all of, of this, but he continues in Hebrews 8 and he's talking about uh, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. He goes on to quote from Jeremiah 31 where Jeremiah says, that, where God tells Jeremiah that I'm, I'm going to do a work, I'm going to create a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And he quotes all that through and then down to skip to verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He says, he says, this sacrificial system under, under the Levitical priest, it is not the best covenant. It is a copy, it is a shadow of the better covenant that this great high priest will bring to pass. It's a superior sacrifice. We've already said earlier that, that the priest kept dying on them. The sacrifices were never a permanent thing. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14, and every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Sound familiar? For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. So now, now, now we just got to ask, so what? All right, he's a priest. He's a priest like Melchizedek was, but, but better, okay? What difference does that make? Why does this even matter? Why do we spend so much time talking about Christ as our great high priest? What difference does it make? Can I just point out a couple of things? First, because Jesus is our high priest, we can confidently draw near to him. We have access to the presence of God because we have Christ as our high priest. Since then, Hebrews 4 says, since then we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, here was the problem with the old priests. They kept sinning, so they kept dying because of their sins. But now we've got a great high priest who does not sin. And because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I'm going to tell you something, man. Hebrews is just, he is all, I don't know who wrote Hebrews, but he was all over it. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says a little bit later in chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We stand clean because of our great high priest. And because we're clean, we can... Don't don't go in marching in like you own the place. We're walking confidently, knowing that God will be merciful because your sins have been atoned for. When's the last time you prayed with that kind of confidence. When is the last time you got down on your knees and said, God, I know, I know that you give mercy to those who need it. I need mercy. When's the last time, instead of crouching your prayers with, well, if, if it be your will, and I'm not really sure, and maybe if, if, if it's okay with you, when's the last time you just said, God, I believe that this will glorify you. Now you do what glorifies you. But Lord, I'm asking, I'm asking for you to bring healing. I'm asking for you to bring my child to faith. I'm asking for you. When, when is the last time you prayed with a confidence knowing that if your prayer, if the answer to your prayer is no, God's going to do something even better than what you're asking for? And if the answer is yes, well then, I knew you could do it all along. It's it's the three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, standing before Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in the world at that time, and telling him, you know, God, God is able to save us. We have no doubt about it, but even if he doesn't save us, we will not bow down to your image, O king. When's the last time you prayed to God with the kind of confidence that said, God, you're going to do your will and I know your will will be great. This is, this is what I'm asking you to do. But regardless of whether you do that or not, I'm, I trust you completely. When's the last time you prayed that way? I'll tell you, those prayers don't come often enough for me. Let's draw near in full assurance of faith with a clean heart, confidently, Approaching the throne of grace. Now again, don't act like you own the place. You don't. He does. But we can have confidence in him, can't we? Because Jesus is our high priest, we can confidently confess our hope. 
I just read uh, uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Look in verse 23, the very next verse. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When's the last time you were confident in the gospel? Not just confident in its effect on you. I mean, you can look back and you can see you were really screwed up before Jesus. You're still pretty screwed up now, but he's working on you, so it's okay. You're making progress. But when's the last time that you were talking to somebody else and you had full confidence? And you didn't have to say, well, I don't really know. Uh, should I say anything? Because they might ask a question I don't know the answer to. Guess what? It's okay. You know, the best thing, you know, the best thing, the best conversations I've had, someone has asked a question. I said, you know what? I really don't know the answer to that. And you know what happens? They're like, okay. People don't mind if you go find out the answer. And let's find out together. Let's open up the book and let's find out together. I'm going to tell you something. We don't have to be perfect. He is. We can have confidence in him. And we can hold our confession, our hope, confidently. Because guess what? The other day, I was walking with Savannah and Brantley in a parking lot. Just got out of the car and said, all right, hands, hold hands. Their grip is not always tight. Sometimes they're loose. Sometimes they're like, I want to get away from them real quick, so I'm just going to barely hold on so I can kind of snatch and run away. But when there's danger around, guess what happens to my grip? Can I tell you this? Even if you don't feel like you're confidently holding your hope, just know that the God of that hope is confidently holding you. and He's not going to let go. So we ought to be willing to share it, huh? I might not have all the answers. I might screw up in some things I say. I might, I might say some things that sound really bad, and you, they may not even they may not even accept the gospel. But it's okay because I can hold with confidence because I know my high priest. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we can confidently build each other up. We don't have to act like it's going to be okay. We know it's going to be okay. And so we don't have to just say, hey, well, you know, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it gets better for you. Oh, it's going to get better. How do I know that it's going to get better? Because I've got a great high priest. And he says that. Let us consider, verse 24, same chapter. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We often take that as like, so you got to be in church. Can I tell you something? We need to be the church. Because Jesus is our high priest, we need to be confident that better things are coming. So much so that when somebody's going through trouble, we don't have to fake support, but we really do support them. We don't have to act like it's going to be okay because it really is going to be okay. Now, it may not improve physically. It may just get worse and worse until the, that person dies. But what's happening to that Christian after death is a whole lot better than what they're going through now. Worst case scenario, you get to God sooner. So let's start one another up. Now, that's not stir up trouble. 
Daryl. Got it. No? <laughs> me? Who, me? Let's stir one another up to good works. You can do it. I know you can. I've seen God working in you. I've watched you grow. I've watched you develop. I've watched you go from, from someone who didn't know a little bit to is growing more in their knowledge. I've watched you from, from the time you were knee-high to a grasshopper to now. And I've seen you develop. I've seen God working in your life. I know you can do this. You feel, you feel like God's calling you to it? Great. Let's give you opportunities. Let's help you out. What do you need? Do you need resources? Do you need people? Do you need fun? What do you need? Let's do it. Hey, how's that ministry going? I heard you were, you were headed to the prisons to talk to inmates. How is that going? What kind of fruit are you seeing? Who can I pray for? Because Jesus is our high priest. We don't just have to fake our relationship with each other. Because we really have genuine communion with God. We can have real, genuine communion with each other. You've heard me quote him before. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says that in Christ we have each other wholly and for all eternity. The basis of our Christian community is Christ and Him alone. So because He's our high priest, we can be confident and build each other up. I don't know why we don't talk about this more often, but I for one need that kind of a high priest. Thank God he gave us one. Father, we are so grateful for all your son has done. Not just, not just living a good life and, and, and dying an atoning death and rising from the dead. Those are wonderful things. But, but the fact that you actually care enough about me and about all of us that you would apply that atonement to us the sinful human beings that we are that you would rescue us from our sins that you would redeem us from the slavery that we have to sin and death and hell and bring us life life that we can count on life that we can live abundantly for you confidently holding fast the hope confidently drawing near to your throne confidently building each other up. We thank you that your decree that Christ be our great high priest is the means by which we have come to know you. Father, you have done great things. Amen. So we greatly praise your name. This morning, you being our high priest may take on additional meaning. There might be something that you want us to do. And you put it on our hearts. You've laid it in and, and you have you have made it clear to us exactly what we are to do. You know, the priest wasn't just someone who made sacrifices. He was also someone who spoke the words of God. And your, your word is active. When people hear it, you, you, you guide them. You use it to direct their paths. You use it to change their hearts. You use it to shape them into your likeness. And so, Father, this morning, there's a way that some of us may be wrestling with to follow that word, to, to put that word into practice. Maybe we haven't been confident and you're calling us to walk closer with you, to experience the kind of life that you meant for us to live.
Father, it might be that, that someone here doesn't know you. They've played the church game. They've, they've come. They've, they've said all the right things. They may have even walked an aisle and gotten wet in the baptism, but there's been no change of heart. Father, would you call them to repentance, to recognize the sacrifice that you've made, and to seek forgiveness for their sin? let you be the one in charge. Father, it may be something else. It may be that you're calling them to do something and they just need to obey you. There's no magic words, no special trick, just God, I'm willing to do what you call me to do. Father, would you in this time lead their steps? You are our king. You are our prophet. You are our priest. So help us draw near to you. Do your work in this time. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to be up here at the front. Why don't we stand? Turn to page 552, 552.